jokingly before the service, I commented that they were in their summer attire without their robes, and they were all rejoicing. So I know that it's nice to uh, be free a little bit from being hot in the summer. Our text today is Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And if you have your Bible or your Bible app with you and your electronic device, I would invite you to follow along as we read those, pa- those verses together. Today we're going to focus on the story of Moses as a baby, and we're going to see how God transformed a river of death and destruction into a river of peace and purpose. Now, a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes. Go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, and she named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. We're in a new series of messages called The River. And if you live in Richmond, you know that's how we refer to the James and some of the other rivers in our commonwealth. In the series, we're studying rivers in the Bible, some literal like the Jordan of last Sunday and like the Nile today, and others more figurative as we go through the series. Last week, we talked about the crossing of the Jordan where God, through Joshua, led the people of Israel to cross into Canaan on dry ground. Upstream, 19 miles, God had stopped the water flow. The water became a wall, and I know the people there were amazed. And meanwhile, down south part, the people crossed on dry ground. Before it all happened, God told Moses to give instructions to the people, consecrate yourselves today for what God will do tomorrow. So we drew truth that often God is asking us to spiritually prepare and set apart ourselves for uh, today for what God is going to do tomorrow. Today the series takes us to a river which was the launch of the redemption story of the people of Israel, the Nile River in Egypt. In the Old Testament, the Nile is often referred to as 
the river. The people would call it the river. And everyone knew what it meant. It meant the Nile. Sort of like here in Richmond when we say the river. The James. So as we discover, as we study God's Word today, we hope to discover two realities and then make one main practical application. So if you're taking notes at that point, you might want to jot those things down. Our story is found in the book of Exodus, which is the account of the bondage and redemption of God's people, the Israelite. The word Exodus is the name given to this book in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Hebrew Scriptures. The word Exodus means departure or outgoing, referring to God's leading of the people out of Egyptian slavery into freedom. Some of you might have known Dr. Paige Kelly, a Hebrew scholar at Southern Seminary for many years. Before he died in 1997, he taught at the Baptist Seminary here in Richmond. And he wrote, few events in history have had such far-reaching effects as Israel's exodus out of Egypt. The exodus event lies at the very heart of the Old Testament. The exodus is to the Old Testament what the resurrection is to the New Testament. And he writes, Israel regards the exodus as the single most important event in her history. Today's story centers on a Jewish couple who took a great risk to have a baby boy during a time that it was not permissible. The husband was a Levite, as you've already heard, and he was married to a Levite woman. Chapter 6, verse 20 says she was Jochebed. She lived as a Jewess in a Jewess in ancient Egypt. The Jewish people had migrated to Egypt because a terrible famine had threatened them with starvation, and they were permitted to migrate there because one of their own forefathers, Joseph, had risen to the top of the Egyptian government as a member of Pharaoh's cabinet. But the years passed, and Joseph had died. And so did the Pharaoh who knew him and who had appointed him to such a high office. Eventually, a Pharaoh came along who did not know Joseph, Scholars say it could have been some 200 years between. And this particular Pharaoh, don't know his name, but he was threatened by the Hebrew people <clears throat> because they had kept multiplying. Chapter 1, verse 7 says that they had multiplied greatly and that they had become exceedingly numerous. The Hebrew meaning behind this becoming exceedingly numerous, really refers to bugs. It's like the gnats and the bugs that would swarm. If you've ever been down in the low country of South Carolina where my mom lives, she lives in Mount Pleasant next to Charleston, you know what no are all about. We can be seated on my mom's little patio behind her townhouse around the table enjoying some time, and then those no all of a sudden you start to itch. And those no will be eating you up. By the way, after early service, one of our members said, if you put a dryer sheet around your shirt collar, that it will help keep the no away. I'm going to tell my mama about that. If you've been to the eastern shore of Virginia, you know that the mosquitoes there, not only are they huge bugs, but they also swarm around you. They are exceedingly numerous and will leave a quarter-sized wealth on you if you're not sprayed over with bug spray. Well, this is how the Pharaoh 
looked or viewed the, the Israelites, that they were pests like the insects. And he wanted to do something about it because he felt threatened by them. Maybe if another country came to attack, the Hebrew people would join them and overthrow his kingdom. So he tried to control their population. First, he put the men into slave camps and used slave labor to build big cities. But that didn't work because the people continued to multiply. Then he thought of economic oppression, but that didn't work either. Finally, he resorted to a horrific means, genocide. Genocide is defined in the dictionary as a deliberate and systematic destruction of a racial, political, or cultural group. Hitler tried this against the Jewish people in the 30s and 40s, and we call it the Holocaust. It happened to the Chinese during World War II, and you can think of other places like Cambodia, Bosnia, Darfur, Rwanda, and others. Genocide is not a modern phenomenon. 3,500 years ago or so, this pharaoh tried to destroy the Hebrew people by doing away with all the baby boys, much like Herod did during the, seek, sought to do during the time of Christ. So the Pharaoh gave instructions to the midwives, the Hebrew midwives, that they were to let the, the, the boys survive, but the, the girls survive, but not the boys. The narrator tells us in Exodus 1.17 that the midwives feared God and did not do what the Pharaoh had instructed them to do. They let the boys live. When the king summoned them and asked them why that was the case, they replied, well, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are vigorous and they give birth before the midwives arrive. Clever response. Well, the scripture shows, tells us that God showed favor to the, the Hebrew midwives. And because they had feared God, they themselves had families of their own. Pharaoh, however, gave instructions to try to get rid of them once and for all, and the baby boys were to be thrown in the river. The Nile River was actually worshipped as the number two god of the Egyptian people. And so perhaps the Pharaoh was thinking, since the river is a god, I'm not responsible, the god is. So he would wash his hands of being responsible for the deaths, horrible deaths of all of those children. So now we pick up with our couple, the Levite man and his wife. It was during this time of oppression and genocide that they actually took the risk and had a baby boy. This is their third child. Jochebed had spent many long days and nights and crying, you can imagine, about what to do. Her third son was now three months old, and babies cry a lot at that age. She would not be able to keep him hidden for much longer. You can imagine the baby cooing and eating and laughing and crying and the parents trying to, uh, to hide that. And if he were found, she feared the worst. What kind of world was she bringing her son into? Her older son, Aaron, ends up in a slave prison what about their daughter Miriam? Who knows? These parents feared the kind of world that their son would grow up in. They wanted nothing more than a wonderful life for him like many of us today, but she feared for the worst. 
What if there were no start at all for him? I think Jacobed feared what a lot of parents fear today. We look at the newsreels, the newspaper headlines, the internet uh, blog posts and evening news, and we see things that are unsettling. And we worry and we have fears about what kind of world our children are growing up in. And if we're not careful, we can live in a constant state of anxiety. And that's not healthy at all. And I don't believe that's the kind of life that God desires for us to live. So this brings us to our first reality. And that is, if you're taking notes, that we live in a world where fear is the known factor. People are afraid of lots of things. We live in constant anxiety oftentimes. We know the fear factor. Not to show, but we know the fear factor. The crime factor. The greed factor. The addiction factor. The violence factor. The future that looks terrifying in a lot of ways. We quake at the constant changes in our society. We tremble because we can't change the future. And sometimes the tendency is just to move farther away from where the problems are. So if, if we could just move far out into the rural areas of the county, everything will be all right. But if you know anything about the rural areas of the surrounding counties of Richmond, that we have some of the same problems that you find in the urban areas. None of us is shielded from the things that life throws at us. Often we try to escape and we just can't. Or we try to put lids, lids on our lives and control the future. Or hover over our kids so that they don't uh, experience or see some of the things that we see. But we forget that God is never in bondage to what is. We look at the constraints of what is, but God looks at the challenges of what can be. We see the brutality of a Pharaoh putting while, uh, of, of a Pharaoh while God is putting a baby in a basket. God sees the future. God sees ahead. We don't know what Pharaoh it was, but when that baby was put in the basket, all of the history of the world changed. History turned a corner. We can either focus on what's wrong in our world, or we can choose to focus on the God who is always putting together new possibilities in our world. That's why it's important that we as a body are a church family. We can't navigate this world alone. Some of you may not have a church home and you're visiting, and I'm thankful that you're here. And I pray that God will lead you to this or another church that where you'll have a church family. But so many don't have that. And I often wonder how people navigate through difficult times like the losses we've had in our church this week without a church family to help shoulder that difficulty. I remember back in 2012, my college roommate, Bill, called me and his wife, Heather, had passed away. We are all the same age. I was in his wedding. He was in mine. Heather was my little sister in the fraternity. And on a Sunday afternoon, she had gone to the hospital with abdominal pain. And on Thursday, she was gone. Melanoma had spread, and they didn't even know it. And Bill called me and says, Bob, 
would you do the service? Absolutely. I never thought that I would be leading the service of my college roommate's wife with two boys. The problem is that Bill didn't have and still doesn't have a church home. He he didn't know what to do. He had no clue. And after the food that was brought was thrown in the wastebasket, and after the cards and the calls stopped, he still is struggling and is stuck. And he doesn't have a body of people like this to help him navigate such a difficult time. It's horrible, yes. But as Christian people, we know that when we go through times, we hold each other up and that there is a greater hope in Jesus Christ that we, we hold to that hope that someday we will meet again in heaven. And until that point, the, the church is going to uphold us and help us and strengthen us and encourage us. So I pray even to this day that he would find a church home and I've tried to you know, share with him as best as I knew. We must put our faith and trust in the God who puts saviors in mangers in Bethlehem and puts little babies who will deliver in baskets. This brings us to the second reality. We must constantly remember the God factor. If the world lives in a fear factor world, we must constantly be reminded of the God factor. The God who changes our negative situations and redeems them and makes them good. Sometimes we don't understand it at the time, but we will be able to look back and see that God made it good. Some of you may remember back when the Cold War was ending and President Reagan stood before Mr. Gorbachev and said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And in 1989, efforts were made to dismantle the Berlin Wall, and church bells began to ring throughout Europe. And someone put a little sign in a church lawn in Budapest, and the sign said simply this, the baby in the manger wins again. See, little babies are God's continual witness that the eternal God is never in bondage to what is but he is always bringing into being what can be. When God wants to change the world, he sends a baby. Moses' mother helps us to overcome the fear factor by constantly remembering the God factor. She had the faith to trust God with her son. I don't know that I would have had such faith as she. And then she sent Miriam to watch. And the scripture says she stood at a distance to see what would happen. And Pharaoh's daughter came along to bathe. And you heard the rest of the story. It's just amazing how God redeemed that situation. Instead instead of turning to her father or obeying his orders to destroy, she had compassion on the baby. She helped the baby. And the baby's own mother was able to nurse him until such a time she gave him back over to Pharaoh's daughter where Moses was raised in the home of the Pharaoh and became a key leader in his household and was called by God to deliver the people out of Egypt. The Nile River was a river of death and destruction because of an evil man 
but with God it became a river of peace and purpose. Jacobed's courage alongside the Nile River turned fear into opportunity. Her risk worked itself out for her baby's salvation and the redemption of her people. Peter Drucker, management guru, says that risk and security are not opposites, but that they run on parallel track. That was true for Jacobed, Moses, Aaron, Miriam. Their risk produced not disaster, but a security of its own. God was at work in their risk. But you might say, Pastor Bob, you need to look at the rest of the story. Because you didn't read about the time that Moses killed somebody and then fled into the desert. Ha! He failed. But God never stops working when we fail. Could you imagine if our failures thwarted the work of God? God is the God of every second chance, every contingency. God has a backup plan to the backup plan. Moses in spite of his failures, was used by God to do amazing things in leading the people out of bondage and leading them as they were in the wilderness. This brings us to our takeaway, if you're taking notes. Our takeaway is we can fear God or everything else. We can fear God or everything else. Solomon wrote in Proverbs 1-7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. The fear of God is to revere God or to have reverence for God. We trust God. We obey God. We submit to God's authority. We respect God. We surrender our lives to Him. We live life knowing that God is watching over us. So our question is, what are we afraid of? What are we afraid of? What's going on in your life? Are you afraid of failure? A lot of people today are afraid of what other people think of them. Especially a lot of young people. Afraid of what others might think or say. Some of us are afraid of the unknown. If we don't have a healthy fear of God then we'll fear everything else. And we'll live in a constant state of anxiety. And that's no place that we want to be. So this story for us is a story that God is always at work in redeeming our circumstances and that He's always ahead of us. He sees what we don't see. It's Jacobed's unwavering trust in God that led to the deliverance of the Hebrew people from Egyptian slavery and it changed the course of history and opened up for the greater story of redemption to be told throughout the Bible. Noah was delivered. The Israelites delivered. Jonah delivered. David delivered. Elijah delivered. Jeremiah delivered. Remember, he was thrown into a cistern. Three teenagers thrown into a fiery furnace, delivered. Daniel delivered from the den of lions. Samaritan woman delivered from her past. A leper delivered from his disease. The adulterous woman delivered from her scorn and shame. Lazarus delivered from death. Paul and Silas delivered from a prison. Peter delivered from fear and failure. Paul delivered from a murderous past. The disciples delivered from 
doubt, and God sent another baby to deliver us from our sins. He rose from the grave to give us new life. Jesus is our deliverer. God sent His Son to deliver you and me from fear and death and doubt and sin. And He gives us new life. We live in a world of uncertainty, don't we? Where fear is the known factor. But we must remember the God factor. I choose to fear God. And I believe you are here today because you choose to fear God. I believe in God the Father Almighty. I believe in God as the maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ as God's only Son who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary and suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. I believe that He ascended into the depths and on the third day He rose again from the dead and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. I believe in the resurrection of the dead. I know that my Redeemer lives and I know whom I have believed and that He is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. I believe you're here today and you say the same thing. I, I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, nor the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Psalmist says in Psalm 30, Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. And I believe that. Psalm 30, a little later, says, You've turned my wailing into dancing. You've removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy, that my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. Lord my God, I will praise you forever. And Jesus says, My peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be 